0: The Tacoma fans file out of a suddenly quiet Tacoma Dome and on the floor Mike
1: Renshaw, with the man who guided it all because that's what it says gordon jago psychics coach well i'm gonna ask you gordon is what you're feeling right now oh i couldn't i words i can't i'm just so happy for everybody for everything i mean it's an unbelievable story it must have been written up there because it couldn't happen any other way well what a finish too with just a tremendous season yeah great Um, credit to both teams it's been a magnificent series it's been a tremendous advert for misl it's a tragedy that somebody had to lose i'm glad it's not us but at the same time great credit to all the players well, what, you know, Carpen again. He did oh. it two nights ago. He did it again tonight. That's right. He uh, he's uh, he keeps coming up with those all important goals, and uh, uh, gee, he's there when it matters most. And we've gee, it's just I'd say I've I no words. I, I can normally speak, but I can't tonight. I'm sorry. It's it's just great. Well, it's been a fairy tale season, Gordon. It surely has, and it ends with a glass slipper, ride and right? And not the poison well, apple. We said we wouldn't wait until midnight. <laughs> That's Gordon Jago,
0: head coach of the MISL champion, Dallas Sidekicks. Back to you, Norm. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, all right, everybody, let's do this. How are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and uh, I welcome you to our little proceedings. Uh, We call this little podcast Good Seats Still Available. And as you know, it's our weekly little journey into what used to be in professional sports. I uh, can't thank you enough for finding us and downloading us and streaming us and listening to us or however you're consuming us. Uh, However you're doing that, we appreciate it. And uh, we also appreciate uh, our guest this week, Gordon Jago, for a wonderful conversation. And I think you're going to really enjoy, uh, especially if you uh, grew up uh, watching the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Say as a kid in the 70s and early 80s, perhaps Uh, You were rattling around the stands in 1968 or 69 watching the Baltimore Bays of the then-fledgling North American Soccer League. Or perhaps you grew up and or are still in the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area and uh, were or perhaps still are a Dallas Sidekicks indoor soccer fan from the old MISL, the old CISL, and maybe perhaps even today's version in the MASL. Uh, Gordon Jago is the guy who is the unique link amongst all of those teams, uh, a uh, a veteran and a prolific coach uh, across all those teams and more, as we'll get into in our chat, uh, was there with Clive Toy, our former guest, uh, on an old episode a few weeks ago uh, with the Baltimore Bays when uh, the NASL was uh, not necessarily long for this life, uh, down to five teams in 1969. Uh, and Gordon Jago was the coach. He was also the coach the year before when they newly uh, merged NASL from the two leagues prior to that in 1967. Uh, so some interesting stories there about how that came to be, how that story ended. Some interesting, uh, I think, uh, heretofore untold uh, little tidbits about the story of the Baltimore Bays. So give a listen for that. Um, some very uh, interesting conversation around the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Ah, uh, circa 1978 through 1982 or so, uh, including two Soccer Bowl finalist appearances—one in 1978 versus the Cosmos, and uh, one in 1979 against the Vancouver Whitecaps. Neither uh, emerging victorious, however, but you know a a very storied franchise. The Tampa Bay Rowdies and Gordon Jago was the head coach uh, for some of the uh, biggest years of that franchise's history. Uh, we get knee deep into that. Uh, that's also uh, worth the price of admission right there. And then if that weren't enough, and by golly, shouldn't it be, uh, we get into uh, a, uh, a almost, uh, you know, uh, I guess a dozen plus years of indoor soccer stuff, uh, that of the Dallas Sidekicks variety uh, from, I guess that was uh, the, uh, I want to say the uh, the earlier to mid 1980s, all the way through almost to the uh, good part of the, the 1990s with uh, Gordon Jago as the head coach and for a number of years, the general manager and the chief cook and bottle washer for that franchise. Uh, And if you grew up in the Dallas Metroplex area, uh, you will certainly remember vividly uh, some uh, fine championship seasons, one in the MISL in 1988, which you just heard uh, as the intro to the show. Uh, Again, it was another championship in the CISL. Of course, you're probably going to remember many sweaty shirts being thrown into the stands as uh, the inimitable tattoo Uh, did his uh, scoring uh, uh, celebration after uh, many, many goals uh, at Reunion Arena and elsewhere for that matter. We get into all of that stuff uh, with uh, the legendary coach and uh, uh, American soccer pioneer. uh, His name is Gordon Jago, and uh, we uh, had a great chat, and I welcome you to it uh, in just a couple of seconds uh, after we get a couple of promotional things out of the way, shall we? Okay, let's do that. OldSchoolShirts.com. A relatively new sponsor, our friends in Cincinnati, we love OldSchoolShirts.com, and uh, you will too. I'm certain of it. High-quality T-shirts and uh, and garb with uh, great logos and uh, remembrances from teams and leagues no longer with us, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other uh, things uh, related to sort of pop culture, perhaps around the stadia or stadiums, you pick your plural, uh, that uh, were around during those times when those leagues and teams were around. Uh, but perhaps maybe the stadiums themselves are not there anymore. Well, they're they're remembered fondly at OldSchoolShirts.com as well as the uh, the teams uh, and their logos and all kinds of stuff. High-quality stuff. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Uh, don't uh, be fooled by other sort of imitators out there. Uh, the Real McGill, f- you will find at OldSchoolShirts.com. And, of course, we got you covered when you decide to uh, buy a few of those shirts. Make sure you use that promo code GOODSEATS. Yep, that's the promo code GOODSEATS, and you will get 10% off all of your purchases, that's OldSchoolShirts.com. We thank them for their patronage of our show, and uh, I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy the experience as well. You will also enjoy the experience from our friends out of San Diego at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, and there, you can use the promo code GOODSEATS, and you can get 15% off all of your purchases. And that's memorabilia. You want pennants, they got them. You want buttons, they got them. You want media guides, check. You want, uh, let's see, I don't know, you want uh, uh, yearbooks. They have those too uh there's uh, a whole bunch of buttons and uh, stickers and you name it from uh, scorecards from all kinds of teams uh, and leagues that are no longer with us or previously incarnated uh there's a new inventory just about every week beautifully photograph uh, f- f- photographed that's what he's trying to say in his elmer fudd like way by our friend dean mitchell uh, and friends there at sportshistorycollectibles.com and again make sure you use that promo code goodseats will ya No, Good Seats, not the will you part. Uh, And that's going to get you 15% off all of your purchases at Good Seats. Excuse me, at (laughs) SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Boy, oh boy, it's been a long day and uh, we look forward to getting this interview underway as we will right now. Here is our great chat uh, with the great coach, Gordon Jago, uh, that we had just a few weeks ago. As you may know, we... um, just today, this morning, uh, on our weekly publishing schedule, just dropped our episode with uh, a one a gentleman by the name of Clive Toy. Um, oh, geez. <laughs> f- fantastic interview and, and a long time uh, 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 sought after uh, conversation. Um, but maybe you could um, uh, enlighten our mostly American, although I'm surprised at how many other folks around the world uh, uh, access this show. You'd be, you'd be shocked as to the countries and stuff. But for our mostly American audience, perhaps you can give us a bit of a background uh, of you as a player and as a fledgling coach before you even came to these shores in the United States. And I think Mr. Toy probably has something to do with that uh, once you get to the end of that little preamble.
1: Absolutely correct, Tim. Absolutely. Yes. Um, well, again, my history goes back, you know, like most kids in um, England at that at school, uh, you played soccer. Um, And I was very fortunate. I played for the school team. Then I played for the district team. Then I played for the state team. um, And then, of course, I played for England um, under 18s. So, um, you know, as a young boy at school, I had an interest in soccer. um, And and, and was fortunate to enjoy success um, and of course at that age uh, I mean we left I went on to college my father did not want me to sign professional forms uh, I had two offers one from Tottenham Hotspur and one from uh, Charlton as Charlton Athletic in the British First Division but my father felt that I should concentrate on my education first and foremost So I went off to college um, and then after I finished college I signed as a part-time professional and then a full-time professional with Cholton Athletic and that started my career as a first as a player and then very quickly following on I was introduced to coaching at a very young age by uh, Ron Greenwood, the men manager of West Ham United and um, eventually I got my coaching qualifications and then when I finished my playing career I went into coaching and the rest is history. I've had the good fortune to go as a coach to as a manager, um, both in England and here in the United States. And even now, at this old age, I'm still involved with the Dallas Cup, uh, the big youth international soccer. So that's a quick resume of my career. Um, It stretches back a long way, but um, as I said, very fortunate, had a very enjoyable and successful career. Um, and um, and still involved.
0: Well, sure, uh, no doubt. Uh, so the the Charlton Athletic uh, years, right? So obviously you're a play. you were you're a, a centre back by trade, right?
1: Correct. Yes, and, and that came about when I went for the district side um, to for the trials. Uh, I was the tallest, I think I was about six foot one and so and I played inside forward for the school um and such uh, but the um, the coach in charge of selection of the of the state of the school, of the sorry of the state side he selected me um, as a center back because I was so tall you see, and uh, that started it. so I never know if i could have been lucky enough to continue as a perhaps a goal scoring inside forward, but uh, no, I was a center back.
0: Well, OK, so you're, you're playing days, right? So you had a, a pretty lengthy career for, you know, a soccer player at the time, right? I mean, you have about eight, nine years there at, at Charlton and, and maybe uh, somewhat uh, and maybe this is not surprising back back in the day, but uh, with one club, right? Really no, uh, no movement or transfer and, and a bit of uh, stability there. Um, yeah, that's,
1: that's yeah. very true. That's a good point you bring up, Tim, because there's no doubt about it. Uh, both if you look at the history of the game, particularly in England, uh, in my period of time, there were players who had long careers at one club. I had 12 years with Charlton Athletic, just the one club. And you also saw the same with managers and coaches. Um, you know, the, the, the Shankleys of this world, the Fergusons of this world, uh, who had long careers. Now today, if you look at it, players move on from club to club as a coach or as a manager if you lose three or four games you're out um it's a vastly different time there was much more um loyalty uh, on both the club side and the player side uh, in my career well
0: despite that though i mean you started as a as effectively after uh, after your studies right uh, as a as a late blooming or as a, as a later a teenager right and yep. after even just that period of time i mean you're still only what, 28, 29 years old when you basically yeah. segue into coaching, right? How did that come about, your uh, segue into um, coaching?
1: Well, it's two things. Uh, one, um, I was very fortunate that um, I went away with the England training team. Um, they were... They had 17 players, a national team, going on a tour, and they needed five or six more for um, the training games prior to them going overseas to Europe for their three-game tour. And my club, the trainer, was uh, the trainer for England, so he took five of us to train with the England team and make up uh, the 22 for practice games. And that's where I met a gentleman called Ron Greenwood, who at that time was uh, a player with uh, Fulham still, also a centre-back, and he was also a staff coach. And he introduced me to coaching, and that was the start. So at a very early age, I think I was about 25, um, I went on a course uh, by the Football Association in England, um, got my preliminary awards, then I got my full badge, and then the director of coaching... Uh, selected me to be a staff coach and so I was the youngest staff coach even though I was still playing at Charlton. So I couldn't coach a team because I'm a player, playing every Saturday but I got on to lots of courses for the federation um, and such and so I got an early start to my coaching career and I was a staff coach and went over to SEAS to European conferences and um, I was starting to see a whole different game Uh, no disrespect to children athletic but we were not perhaps the most progressive in terms of training and coaching as we perhaps should have been Um, but I was seeing a whole different world um, by being with the Federation so at a very early age I got involved in coaching and then when I was 29 I was already getting a bit despondent to be truthful Uh, I found it very difficult um, going away and seeing how soccer was being played in other parts of the world, different styles, different coaching and such, and I wasn't seeing it at my club. So a little bit of disappointment, and then I got kicked in the eye in a game against Middlesbrough, and I almost lost my sight due to a blood clot, and then I was out for three months, and as the season drew to an end, I made a decision at 29 to not to continue playing and to step into coaching.
0: Well, so would you would you characterize that then as 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 a happy chance then or or did you sort of have a, a knowledge of maybe what your post playing career might look like either in or outside the sport, hence the uh, coaching exp- uh, exposure and, and experience? <laughs>
1: Well, I think it was a combination of being disappointed, Um, you know, if you say I was so lucky because I was a staff coach at, I think, 26, 27, and I was now mixing with the best managers and coaches in England um, at the conferences, at the courses during the summer months. And then when I went back to my club, it was not as good as it should have been in my humble opinion. But I wasn't a rebel. Um, I you know, behaved myself and I did what I had to do as a player, uh, but I wasn't enjoying uh, the situation. And then I think once that injury came about, it kind of made me uh, make the decision um, to now say, okay, finish that, let's look for a career as a coach um, and as I say, I was already a staff coach. I was working for the federation at uh, summer courses and such. So it, it, it kind of—I was lucky, Tim. I think it just fell into place, and I enjoyed the coaching. I certainly enjoyed meeting the quality of managers and coaches that I met both in England and around the world at that time. Um, so I was very fortunate.
0: Well, but speaking of falling in place, right? You, you're you're doing this sort of career transition uh at perhaps the most fortuitous time in, in in English soccer history right given the hosting of the 1966 world cup right that's so,
1: right what, were, um, so what, what so. were you
0: doing between your your playing days and your and your your what was that like and what what part of that were you sort of exposed to or experiencing as part of your sort of coaching uh, uh learning shall we say
1: uh well it was it was twofold um i'd already um, left Carlton Athletic, I think I finished in 62. Um, so um, I then went to with the FA because um, um, they had a co- uh, an association with an amateur club on the south coast of England, where I could go there and just. They were amateur players; they weren't professional, um, and you could be training the players there. But then I was free to do all the work for the federation, so I was able to go, funny, <coughs> on courses. Um, I was able to; I was made the team coach of the England under-18 team, uh, and took them on tour um, to play international games. So at, a, at still as an early age, um, I was now. A coach, but I was at a coach in a small club where you weren't in the limelight. So you, learnt, you could learn and make mistakes, and nobody knew about them if need be. Uh, and it was a great education because, as I say, it gave me a chance to man management, select teams, um, organize the training, and then at the same time work for the federation and then be the national coach for the under-18 team. So I was getting a, a good... Um, apprenticeship working with the Greenwoods of this world and the Jimmy Hills and Alan Browns all these top coaches on the British uh, circuit and at the same time um, leading it. I, I, in fact in 1960 I helped the Olympic team, the British Olympic team um, with uh, Norman Creek to prepare for the Olympic Games and I think they were held in Rome. So I was getting a lot of uh, experience uh, at an early age um, and I think it still be in good stead for later on in life when I went into the professional game after leaving the amateur club and going to Fulham Football Club uh, as the head coach of the first division team.
0: All right. So so explain to our audience a little bit of sort of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the pathway that uh, led you, that got you to and snared you in, shall we say, uh, perhaps to your first uh, exposure into uh, the international, beautiful game, shall we say, in the great United States of America, which arguably is quite naive uh, to it, at least on the on the solid pro level, uh, circa 1966, 67. This is where we sort of mentioned a guy named Clive Toy. Maybe you can give our audience a sense of how you stumbled across the uh, the pond, shall we say, to the lovely ha- uh, Hamlet of, of Baltimore for, uh, you know, your uh, real your debut in American soccer coaching.
1: Yes. Um, Well, what happened was I was with Fulham Football Club, the British First Division, and we had an invitation to come across and play Honved of Hungary in Oakland. And it was at the time as you were preparing for the very first um, period of um, uh, professional soccer, the North American Soccer League, I think it was at the time. And... um, So I came across with Fulham and we played in Oakland and I met a lot of American uh, coaches and such there. And uh, Clive Toy was there because Clive had already come over and he was the general manager of Baltimore Bays uh, owned by the Orioles um, in the North American Soccer League. And Clive and I knew each other from London because Clive had been a top soccer reporter for the Daily Express. So, of course, with me coming over, um, when I went, came back from uh, Oakland to England, um, I received a number of phone calls offering me uh, positions uh, in the United States in the new league, including one from Clive to come to the Baltimore Bays. And um, I decided that um, it would be a. I, in fact, I, I fell in love with America on a visit to uh, San Francisco uh, when we played in Oakland. It was a tremendous experience. It was my first ever visit to the United States. Um, and it was a, an enjoyable experience. And I thought it would be, you know, when Clive offered me the position uh, at Baltimore, I thought it would be a great experience. Uh, I thought that, you know, this was the start of a, of a big experiment by the American Soccer Association to have a professional league, and I was going to be part of that. And so, and to be truthful, um, it was a very nice salary in comparison to the one I was earning at the Fulham Football Club at that time. So um, I was recently married. I had a little a young daughter. I think she was three at the time. So, you know, we decided that we'd take the plunge and accept Baltimore's offer. And so I came across um, and joined the Baltimore Bays uh, with Clive as the general manager. So
0: that's obviously a big jump, especially given that, um, as you were probably aware at the time, or maybe you were blithely unaware, right? In uh, in late 1967, uh, you know, the league, well, actually there were two leagues, right? The United Soccer Association, which was the full importation of teams, and this National Professional Soccer League in which the Bays played, which was uh, arguably actually not arguably, was uh, by all historical accounts, was sort of branded an outlaw league by FIFA for a bunch of different yeah. reasons. So I'm, I'm just curious, it sounds like you were sort of entering this Baltimore Bays situation uh, coming off of this sort of um, crazy competition of of two leagues the year before, there, uh, of which there were none, right? And the sort right. of uh, recognition that you know, maybe uh, cooler heads needed to prevail and, and maybe combining the efforts into one league would be the better way to sort of give it a, a fair shot. Um, do, do you remember anything about sort of your, uh, how you were, shall we say, wined and dined and, and what maybe what you were promised by Clive as you were uh, uh, deciding to come to the United States? Was it that clear that you were sort of stepping into such, uh, I don't know, cacophony or, or uh, unsettledness? Yep,
1: you're right? absolutely right, because I got criticized uh, very heavily in the British press um, for leaving a first division club <laughs> as a, as the head coach uh, under the manager, um, supposedly you know one of the youngsters coming forward and, and a good career ahead of him, and I got very very criti- uh, great criticism in the British press because at that time, as you quite rightly said, that uh, league uh, the, was not even sanctioned uh, by FIFA at that time. But Clive had told me uh, very quietly and confidentially that with the talks that were going on at that time, that those two leagues were going to join forces, become one league, and therefore would then be recognized by the United States Soccer Federation and therefore sanctioned by FIFA. But um, I, I know my father kept a scrapbook, and I know I got criticized very heavily for fancy leaving Fulham Football Club, the British First Division, and going to a renegade league in the United States, da, 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 yeah. But um, Clive had convinced me also that that amalgamation was going to take place, and that we would have um, sanctioned uh, by the FIFA, and so it would be a recognized uh, soccer league. And that, and that did happen, and that's exactly what did happen.
0: Yeah. So, in the, and this 1968 now renamed North American Soccer League. Okay. So it seems to me like in your and you coached there for two seasons. It seems like it was almost a tale of two seasons, right? 1968 was sort of you know the best i guess of the two leagues coming together and and a fairly substantial uh US and, and Canadian footprint of teams uh yeah. and then 1969 which was almost the ultimate collapse where i think there were barely five right. or six teams uh maybe Correct. a few little pointed memories of sort of both of oh, those seasons, yes. what it was like to play in baltimore for a, a beer baron et cetera. what was that all about what was it like
1: <laughs> well again There were 17 teams in that first year that I was here. And you're quite right, at the end of that season, um, it dropped to five and was almost extinct. But there were five teams left um, and they decided that they would bring in five foreign teams, uh, West Ham United, I think, Aston Villa, Wolves, Dundee uh, to play for each of those cities. So Baltimore, I, knowing Ron Greenwood suggested, and we were lucky, we got West Ham United uh, to play for Baltimore. And there was a kind of international league with West Ham United representing Baltimore just to get the season. Because with only five teams, uh, you, you were limited to the number of games you could play and the season wouldn't have been that long. So we had this two-tier situation whereby we had the foreign teams in, all from Scotland and England, playing on behalf of St. Louis, Kansas, um, Dallas, uh, Dallas, and uh, Baltimore, um, and that part was the first part of the season. Well, it wasn't very successful. The attendances were very low. And then, before we started the season, our own season against the five, amongst the five teams, um, Mr. Hofberger, who owned the Orioles and owned us, um, took us to um, Dallas to a meeting of the five owners with Mr. Cashin, who was the Baltimore Orioles general manager, and Joe Hamper, the chief financial officer, and myself. And we went to a meeting in Dallas with the other four clubs. And much to our surprise, because Mr. Cashin didn't know, Joe Hamper didn't know, and I didn't know, Mr. Hofberger stood up at the beginning of that meeting and said, gentlemen, Baltimore Bays will play this season, but will close at the end of the season. And you could imagine the shock to the other four owners and the shock to us three from Baltimore. But that was Mr. Hofberger's decision. Um, he then said, um, you know, he would be, we will be leaving and uh, it should remain silent because it was in the best interest of everybody that, it, that Baltimore's decision would not be known. We would complete the season, fulfill all our obligations uh, to the fixtures, to the finance, et etc. et cetera. Uh, But at the end of that season, 1969, it would close. So that was it. We flew back from Baltimore in his private jet to New York. He dropped off to go to some business. We continued back to Baltimore. And so there we are. We we found out before the season started with our team that we were closing at the end of the season. We were not allowed to tell anyone. We did. And so that was a secret that I had to keep. Um, our restrictions were many, financially. We couldn't have uh, full-time professionals. In fact, I went to New York and I got five New York boys, um, players in the New York uh, German League, I think most of them, and they used to come and play just on Saturday. We didn't see them um, in the week. We weren't training uh, because that was it. And of course it was a disaster, but we kept quiet. Nothing was said until the end of the season. And then it was announced that the Baltimore Bays would close. But we knew the top excellence of, the, of this club, that it was the last season, and um, it was very difficult. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever experienced. But I think it 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 gave me a toughness to um, deal with such a terrible situation. Because I couldn't tell the players that this was the end of the season, you know, this was it. We put on a brave front. Uh, our record was very, very poor. I don't know what it was now. It was pretty poor, as it had to be. Um, and uh, But we knew all along uh, at the end of the season uh, it was over, and um, the Baltimore days would no longer exist.
0: At what point did you, the the, uh, the press that was actually covering the team, and I can't imagine it was that, uh, uh, that voluminous, the amount of reporters and stuff, at what point did it kind of leak out? Because, I mean, you would also... It, it well it well, okay, but it it had I mean if you were paying attention, right? Uh and again, this is all in hindsight, you were there, I was not. Um you know, you were you had moved from Memorial Stadium, right, for the previous two years, right? Oh yeah. Cavernous fifty thousand seater, you know, the, the the Orioles also used to a looked like kind of a high school field, right? No more right. than 10,000 seats, right? So it almost feels to me like it was, I don't know, I, you couldn't help but look at the, uh, I, it could be looked at as an austerity move, right? But also maybe it was sort of the beginning of the end.
1: Or... Yeah, the local press boys, I mean, they were, that you're absolutely right, Tim. Local press boys were writing about the decline. Um, and as I say, we moved deliberately. I mean, it was a set plan to destroy... Um, or to end, not destroy, and the Baltimore Bays. But Mr. Hofberger made it very clear to me that it was to remain quiet because he didn't want any adverse criticism to affect his national beer company or the Baltimore Orioles, et cetera, from the soccer population of Baltimore. He wanted it closed down as quietly as... Uh, as possible, and as least expense as possible. And so we then moved to the high school. Then, and not many people know this, the high school playground, uh, car park, was turned up, broken up. And it was all a deliberate plan to create an atmosphere for Mr. Hofberger at the end of the season when he announced that we were finished, people say, well, it's understandable. They weren't drawing anybody. Nobody was going to the games. They weren't a good team. They're bottom of the league. They only won three games or whatever it was. Um, and so it was, it was easy then to close it down, uh, but it was done deliberately. Um, and as you said, the press were writing about the demise, yes, but, ne- but it was never stated by anybody. Uh, the press would say, you know, what's what's happening here, da-da-da, it's probably going to be the last. I mean, it, because you don't go from the Baltimore uh, uh, Stadium to a high school stadium and then because people then had to park in the street and it wasn't a desirable area and you could come back to your car and your wheels might be gone. But it was a, it was, I think it was a very cold, calculated plan uh, by the senior people of the Orioles, to create that situation so that it saved Mr. Hofberger and his other industries uh, severe criticism from uh, the public in any way, shape, and form.
0: Very interesting. Um, All right, so a couple of quick questions before we get off of this uh, relatively dark period in your career. I don't mean to harp on it, of
1: course. Hey, I tell you what, it was a very harsh period. You can imagine the situation that you can't say a word, you've got to put a brave face on, you've got to say the right things to the players and try and work them. But it it probably made me, it probably made me for my future that after such adverse criticism, because remember, if the team is losing, never mind all these other things, everybody's pointing the finger at you, the coach. You're, you know, you're the coach and you look at this terrible team. You can only win. So I think I grew stronger as a person. And I think it stood me in stead later on in life.
0: All right. So before we leave it then, why do you think Hofberger uh, went on with the 1969 season? then? Because it seems like most of the I wouldn't call them carpetbaggers, but, you know, other baseball owners and or uh, rich folk who. Uh, had backed uh, one of the two leagues in 67 and then the reconstituted NASL in 68. Pretty much seems like most of them, with a few exceptions like Lamar Hunt, etc., ran for the Get doors, it. right? Ran for the hills uh, oh, yeah. at 68. Why do you think Hofberger stayed around, especially given that he was so relatively quick into the 69 season to basically wind it down?
1: He, first and foremost, he saw the demise of the league. You don't go from 17 to five, right? But secondly, I think he had a good friendship with some of the other owners in some of the other teams, with Lamar uh, and with um, the uh, St. Louis owner. Um, And I think what happened was that if he had said "We're we're finished, the league was gone. I mean, five was bad and a four would have been impossible. And so I think that Lamar and the other owners convinced him to give it one more shot, try this player program with the bringing the five British teams in to represent them, to give them some more games and perhaps some more revenue. And, and I think Hofberger was gonna go along with that. But then we had West Ham United, and I think we were only drawing uh, at the stadium at that time, uh, around 5,000 people. And West Ham had three players from that 1966 England World Team, Bobby Moore, Martin Peters, and Jeff Hurst. So then Hofberger must have said, well, look, I've got a hell of a team in from England, top players, three World Cup winners, and we still can't draw, finish.
0: All right, so how do you, um, assign, once the uh, the deed is uh, officially known and done, uh, what happens to Gordon Jago and uh, and his uh, fledgling career in the United States? What happens next?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, because I got to like the United States um, and um, I was now preparing, not because I knew that we were finished and there were some opportunities for me to come back to England. But a good friend of mine who's owned a, a sports business, sports man, um, uh, store uh, in Pennsylvania came to me and he said, look, um, do you want to stay in the United States? I said, yeah, it's okay. He said, I want you to run my soccer business Uh, you know, a shop, a store, um, and sell soccer equipment, and I'll give you the same salary you're getting from the base, da-da-da. And so, um, all of a sudden, I decided to stay because I was enjoying life in America. My wife was, certainly. And so I then went to Pennsylvania, to Westchester, and worked for Peter Green, Uh, Limited with Bob Green and he's still around today. He's 90 odd years of age and still a good friend. And um, I built his soccer store um, up into supplying the equipment to uh, all the colleges and such. Um, but of course, it was a temporary thing after about a, a year, six months. it was. I knew it wasn't me. I didn't want to spend my life doing that. I wanted to be a coach. And, and Bob didn't believe, he couldn't believe, because he said, and, and it's true, he said, you know, and he still says it to this day, you would have been a millionaire. Uh, because we did build, we were, his store was the only one in the United States had access to real good uniforms and soccer shoes and soccer balls. And I was able to get... Oh, so many colleges uh, to buy the, the, the into it. So on. anyway, to cut a long story short. It was an interesting period of uh, about a year uh, in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and um, uh, again. But eventually, I decided it wasn't for us. And also, my wife's mother was dying of cancer, and so we came back to United State, back uh, to United Kingdom.
0: And uh, that was with uh, QPR, and then for and with Millwall, right? So you, this was uh, this was the, this. They were top tier at that time. I forgot. I, I my Premier slash uh, First Division uh, history. Uh,
1: uh, Not quite. away oh, no. for me. Not quite, Tim. When I came back, I came back in 1970 uh, to England, and uh, QPR wanted me to be their coach, and I became the coach in 1970. They were in the second division. At that time, they had been in the first, but had been relegated one or two years before. And so um, I got the job as the coach, and um, and that was in January of 1970. And uh, in 1970, January 71, uh, the manager was released, and I was given the job as uh, the team manager uh, in 1971 at Queen's Park Rangers. And then we were second division, um, and then we, I prom- got promoted to the first division the year later in 72, and then I stayed there till 75, 76, and then I left there and went to Millwall, which was also a second division club.
0: All right, so how do you then get back to the United States? Because obviously it made some impression, and the next move that you made after your... Uh, your dalliances in the, uh, in the English Leagues were, you know, was with arguably a very seminal franchise in the history of the North American Soccer League uh, in Tampa Bay. How does that come about?
1: Well, um, in 1974, uh, Tampa Bay contacted me. I was a QPR manager enjoying a very good career, and uh, Tampa Bay came across to England to meet me and asked me if I would come as their head coach. Well, there was no way at that time i mean i was enjoying um i got them to the first division um i was a manager of the first division club which has always been one's ambition uh, and probably what well, we did we had a terrific team that we built we bought some good players in the transfer market um and we were very very successful and um, so i said no to Tampa Bay. They asked me to give them some names uh, for recommendations, and what I did was Eddie Fomani, a former player with me at Cholton, and Eddie came over in 1974 as the uh, head coach of the Rowdies. Well, in 1976, um, I'd come across as guest of George Strawbridge for a vacation uh, to see them, and whilst I was here, Eddie left uh, Eddie left the um, Rowdies and went to the Cosmos so um, George asked me again and I said no I'm going back to Millwall and uh, that was it but then I had a very bad experience with the BBC over a television program um, about Millwall Football Club because it had a reputation of um, hooliganism at that time a lot of problems on the terraces and it had a very bad reputation. Um, I was working hard to try and change that. Um, I'd built a very good youth uh, organization with youth players. I'd gotten promotion from the third division into the second, and everything was going on that score very well. But once they televised this program and showed some of the... Uh, terrible scenes, uh, and it was very critical, I and mean, it was very untrue. A lot of it was untrue, and it killed it for me. And um, uh, my my uh, chairman, uh, owner, said to the BBC chairman, "You you've killed our club. I've lost." And of course, I then got another offer from Tampa, and I felt that that program had killed it for me at Millwall I could people would no longer come to Millwall Football Club as visitors so if we were playing Tottenham or Chelsea where we'd probably have 10,000 of their fans they would not come because of this terrible television program showing the hooliganism the fights and the brawls and such um and there were some, we did have a reputation, but we were winning the battle. We were doing many things to change the atmosphere. But once that program went on television, Tim, nobody would come from a visiting team to the Millwall Football Club to see their team play. they felt oh, we'll give that one a miss. We'll see them next week at home. And so it kind of decided it for me, and George Strawbridge approached me at the right time and gave me the opportunity to come back to Tampa, and so I came to Tampa Bay uh, in nineteen seventy nineteen. What's it? I think it was
0: uh, Late seventy-seven. Uh, well, actually, seventy-eight, right?
1: Yeah. Yes. It was a, It was January of uh, seventy. You're right. January of seventy-eight, and I came over back to the Rowdies. All right. Well, so the, uh, the reason, as yeah. I say, the reason I left Millwall was because of that one TV program that absolutely, because I'd worked my butt off for two years, I lived on the other side of London, I had all the traffic backwards and forwards, I was there. I went to working men's clubs, to pubs, to youth clubs, all at night, after training, et cetera, to try and build a new reputation for Millwall Football Club, the same as I'd done at QPR. And so, after all that work, this TV program came along, put out a completely false uh, picture of what we were doing, and it, it just killed it for me. I knew I knew I couldn't win because I wouldn't be able to get the attendance, therefore I wouldn't have the money to build the club, to buy tracks for team players and such. And as I say, George Straub knocked on the door at the right time.
0: All right, hang in there. We'll be uh, back to our conversation in just a minute. But, uh, you know, we got to pay the bills around here and we want to uh, wish well to our new sponsor uh, in helping us uh, pay some of those bills. It's my bookie. And uh, can't uh, imagine a better uh, a better sponsor uh, this time of year as the pro and college football season start gearing up. Uh, if you want to get some action in on uh, some of those games and frankly, a whole host of other sports, teams and leagues, uh, not ones that are not around anymore, like we focus here on this little show. I mean, kind of hard to bet on on teams that don't exist anymore. But clearly, today in today's modern era, sports uh, there's a lot going on. And if you want to bet on uh, on games, uh, not just pro football, but just about any sport out there on the planet, you can uh, do so with uh, with relative ease and pure satisfaction with my bookie. That's mybookie.ag. That's the website. If you use the promo code SEATS, they're going to match your initial deposit, up to a thousand bucks, dollar for dollar, that's the promo code SEATS, and they're gonna match your deposit, your opening deposit, dollar for dollar, up to a thousand bucks. And that's gonna be some handy coin uh, to use in uh, in some of your first games uh, that uh, you bet with them at mybookie, mybookie.ag, that's the website. And you, know, you can bet in game, uh, you can bet on uh, all kinds of sports, both US domestic and internationally. And uh, look, there's some other things, too. I think they've got some uh, some bets uh, as we're recording this on things like the MTV Video Music Awards and, you know, all kinds of other fun stuff. So my bookie is the place to go. Uh, it's mybookie.ag, And make sure you use that promo code seats and they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar up to a thousand bucks. And that's going to be uh, a nice uh, chunk of extra change to put to work uh, with your inklings on who you think is going to win uh, in, uh, in various games, football and otherwise, uh, as the season progresses. That's mybookie, mybookie.ag. We thank them for their sponsorship. And don't forget to use that promo code SEATS uh, to get that, uh, that special deposit bonus. And now, back to our conversation. So let's talk about your uh, Tampa Bay, right? Because uh, this is one of the brightest uh, franchises in the NASL, especially at this time. And here you are, you're taking over for uh, a coach who had already won uh, a championship in their first year in 1975 uh, and had been picked, uh, picked up by uh, the uh, aforementioned Clive toy now uh, shepherding or or managing the, uh, the New York cosmos at the time. And, and, you know, in 1977, obviously, uh, sort of in a, a hugely uh, transitional and uh, mediocre, uh, mediocre, meteoric. that's kind of a different word, of course. Year for the for the cosmos, but here you are in '78 and '79, uh, literally coming into a franchise that had some amazing pieces to it. We'll talk about some of the players in a second. But um, what I think a lot of people forget is that uh, you know, not only were were the the rowdies drawing really well, but Uh, In 78 and 79, you led the Tampa Bay Rowdies to the soccer bowl in both years. And ironically, ironically, uh, in 1978, facing off against the very same Eddie Fermani, now head coach of the New York Cosmos.
1: That's right. Yeah, of course, we weren't good enough to beat the Cosmos on that day. Our success was getting, because we started off very poorly, uh, but we turned it around. And um, we had a good run. Uh, and we got to the final uh, at the Meadowlands, and there were 70-odd thousand there to see the Cosmos play the round. Including, including
0: yours truly. Uh, no offense, I'm not rooting for you. I apologize.
1: <laughs> but again, a wonderful. And again, going there, I mean, the Cosmos were so strong. They were so good. I mean, they had Beckenbauer, uh, Carlos Alberto, Giorgio Canalia, I mean, they were stacked with stars. And so, to me, uh, getting to the final was a success. If we were going to beat them, we were going to have to have a very special day with some good fortune. And we battled, but we weren't quite good enough, and we lost 3-1. But, but, we got there, and we turned it around, and, um, you know, the boys did a super job. It was a good final from our point of view, we did well and um uh, it was a it was a successful season would love to have won it but not against the cosmos uh, on that day
0: and not against the uh the Vancouver Whitecaps in 79 either uh, or more no, of a chance there no, no
1: no 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 <laughs> we should have beaten the whitecaps right now we there there I,
0: there I was rooting for you because the uh Vancouver Whitecaps of course had beaten the cosmos in the uh unceremonious the semi. before right
1: that's right Uh, But a big story, of course, um, and I don't think we've got enough time to tell it, but I'll keep it brief. Rodney Marsh was our star, right? He was their one forward who could win games for us. A brilliant player, brilliant player. But um, Rodney um, was having some problems, uh, and I think he wanted a new contract, and it was decided by the authorities of the club uh, at that, that time that it wasn't the right time to discuss a new contract. He was under contract, uh, but he knew that we were trying to sign a player from England who played for New England uh, on loan by um, Mike Flanagan. And there were all sorts of big money talked here, you know, a million dollars for his transfer and all this business. And I think Rodney thought, well, okay, if they're going to give that sort of money or big money to him, I deserve an increase. And so it wasn't uh, forthcoming. And to this day, and Rodney and I don't agree on too many things because um, I had him with me at QPR and he left me. At Q, he wanted away at QPR and he knew that Manchester City wanted to buy him. And um, he asked for a transfer and we could we, we would play to get out of the second into the first. We were right up the top second and Rodney Rodney uh, didn't play for three games before the transfer deadline in London. And um, consequently, we had to transfer him. And we transferred him, and we lost, because we lost three games, and we never lost three games with Rodney. But he was on the field, but he wasn't playing. He was, he was disturbed. And consequently, we finished uh, third or fourth and missed out on promotion. So that would, and Rodney was sold to Man City, and that was it. Now, I inherited him again at the Rowdies and to this day, Rodney did not play against Vancouver Whitecaps. He was on the field, but he didn't play, and we lost that one 2-1. One. But if Rodney had been the Rodney I knew, the Rodney was capable of, um, I believe we would have won that game. But um, whatever for whatever it is, That was his decision. He knew well what he wanted to do, what he didn't want to do, and at the end of the season, he decided to retire. And the Tampa Bay Rowdies gave him a testimonial, the first one ever in United States sport. And Rodney left with a very nice paycheck at the end of that uh, situation. But um, it um, it always will be um, a disappointment to me because I saw it twice. He did it when he wanted to go to Man City. And um, he did it when we were playing Vancouver Whitecaps. And uh, so uh, a disappointing uh, situation. Uh, But again, we were in the championship again for two years running. And um, we were drawing and we went on to draw, I think, average about 30,000 people in a city of Tampa where they'd never, ever seen a soccer ball that had run a soccer team at that time.
0: Yeah, so describe to me that sort of the atmosphere because uh, it was uh, quite unique. This is obviously before or just oh. after they got the Buccaneers football team, right? But it was, it was quite something. Right? Tampa Bay, it was professional oh, in every sense of the
1: word, right? Every, oh, the marketing. There was a uh, McDonald's and Little, a marketing company um, in Atlanta that George uh, brought in. And um, a man called Larry Jennings, and he was a genius. And he started the roundies, the kick in the grass, the wildest, the loudest. I mean, you, I, I used to go to the game early to sit in the stand and watch all the things that were going on. There were jazz bands going around the concourse. There were cookouts and uh, competitions in the car park. Uh, there was Crazy George up in the stands banging his drum. Um, it, and people came because it wasn't just a soccer game. Many of the people who came in those early stages didn't have a clue about soccer, but it was a day of entertainment. There was so much going on. It was brilliant, brilliant marketing. And uh, TV and clubs came from all over the world to Tampa to see what we were doing that made it so successful in a city that had never had a soccer team, period, and yet was suddenly averaging 30,000 people at games. It was a magnificent, and it was a trivia atmosphere. And again, I mean, Rodney Marsh was, was brilliant. I mean, he, was a, a, he played brilliantly. Um, and he was a, a tremendous attraction, but we had a good, solid team um, playing attractive soccer, and with all that was going on around, the rowdies were uh, well known throughout the world. They sent there was a comedian came over for three weeks and filmed things, and they had a massive one-hour program on British television about the Tampa Bay Rowdies. It was just incredible, Tim.
0: Oh, i'd love to find that uh that uh, video or that uh, that show if you, you happen to know where that might be that's interesting
1: i think i i think i have one okay well i, I have you, one if i'll check i'll check and if i do i'll certainly send it to you no,
0: we love that stuff we absolutely love that stuff especially if it hasn't been seen or I
1: think it's called it? a kick in the grass
0: okay all right well maybe i'll we'll see if it's on youtube yet if it's not maybe we've discovered uh, a little pearl yeah. for this little show this is great um, yeah. So give me a sense of uh, so you mentioned Riley Marsh, obviously a, a person, a personality among personalities, but oh, yeah. um, for whatever oh, yeah. reasons. Right. But give me a sense of some of the other players, because you had some really uh, standout stars. I mean, uh, Oscar Fabiani and Steve Wagerly and Neil Roberts. for oh, yeah. well. uh, Give us a sense of sort of like uh, the talent that you sort of had and, and maybe how you got access to such talent. Was that was that you? Was that George of the ownership? How, how were you able to sort of assemble uh, a pretty, pretty solid uh, uh, crew of of performing uh, players during those years.
1: Yeah, well, there was a nucleus already when I got there um, of good players. Uh, Mike Connell in defense, uh, Steve Weggley. Um, oh, geez, uh, there was who else? Was I, know, was awesome. but I, I bought Oscar Fabiani. I, I, I scouted. I, I traveled the world for a little while to see certain players. And Oscar Fabiani was a brilliant player, he was one of the best that we had also, but Steve Wegley from South Africa, Mike Connell from South Africa, uh, Winston Dubose our goalkeeper um, there was so many um, uh, Wilf Tranter, a full back, um, oh geez I'm trying to think of the other names there. but they were, they were terrific um, Peter Yugoslavia Yugoslavian, good midfield player um, there was a whole stack of very, very, uh, um, shall we say, experienced players with some youngsters coming in. The colonels of this world um, that they've been brought in before, and then I was able to bring in one or two of the top stars, and it um, it really settled us, and we had a very strong squad. And as I said, Rodney was exceptional. Um, he played. He was, he was the team. I mean, he was he was the star attraction. Uh, had um, a great career, and as I say, it was so tragic in the end that due to a situation uh, that, you know, he decided it wasn't quite right. But um, there, there was there was a lot of good players at that time uh, here. And there was um, Arsene August a fullback from um, Haiti, was ex- excellent. Um, uh, oh, geez, Paul Hammond, a goalkeeper, for a while. Um, no, we had a good solid squad there. And we were a very sound team and uh, and it was a joy for me to be the coach because I enjoyed going to work every day. They were enthusiastic. We had the balance of experience and youth um, and and to say we played good soccer, and we were successful. We had um, We won the indoor uh, in the close season. We had two appearances in the soccer bowls at a time when there were a lot of good teams. Uh, and it was, it was a very happy experience for me. Tampa uh, leaves me very, very good memories.
0: All right, so a couple of quick questions on Tampa before we, we, we uh, veer off of that. So what of indoor? Because uh, Tampa was actually one of the more stellar and um, persistent teams in the indoor uh, game that the NASL uh, was, uh, I don't know, tinkering with and then obviously became more interested in once this MISL came about, which we'll get to that in a minute. But... Um, what, what was indoor like? I mean, you did win, uh, I think you won a championship uh, while you were
1: there in the indoor side. Yes. no?
0: or Yes. Or, or it, was a,
1: it was a learning experience for me. <laughs> you know, it was a vastly different um, indoor situation. You know, we were playing with boards and such as opposed to five-a-side generally in England prior to. But the reason we played in the indoor was the league was trying to keep the players occupied because they were being paid and they, they, they wanted to keep the players occupied during the winter. Also, they wanted to keep the um, interest in the spectators. And so uh, it was decided that, and I think the NPSL they already started uh, in those days. And so we, the North Americans, decided to play a limited edition, but it was primarily to keep the players active, to give them something to do, to give us a chance to earn extra money for attendances um, and so on through the closed season. Um, So that was it. But it it wasn't nothing like the indoor that I experienced later on uh, with the the other sidekicks. It um, It was pretty much just a free... We weren't as clever in terms of substitution off the bench and all those sort of things. We weren't as clever as playing off the boards. Uh, but we had a lot of really good soccer players. Uh, Peter Baradich and Steve Wegley uh, were very good indoor players. Um, so we were, we were competitive and we won against the other teams that we played uh, in those days. But it was really uh, an indoor league in its infancy and it wasn't there uh, as the major concerned we were still outdoor clubs these were games primarily just to keep active
0: during the winter months well it looks it looks like you i mean you 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 uh, sold out the uh, the bayfront center i mean on a regular basis i mean the yeah. little cracker box of a stadium if i'm not mistaken it was actually i, I think and I, i'm not from the tampa area but uh, if i look at some of the pictures from some of the uh, uh some of those games uh i'm not even sure you had plexiglass across it almost looked like chicken wire or, or fencing uh if i'm not mistaken around some of the boards is
1: that is that right right oh yeah we did as i say it was very um, inferior to, to what was that later developed with the with the plexiglass etc cetera, et cetera. and uh, but um the rowdies, as i say have done such a magnificent job in marketing the game and you know the music um uh, with the wildies and all that business and the kick in the grass song um People came to Bayfront Centre in Saint Pete to see the indoor team because, again, it was a fun night. It was an entertaining night. We had all sorts of entertainment at halftime. The team would come in in an army truck one day, uh, in a taxi the next. You know, there was always the marketing people of the Tampa Bay Rowdies were absolutely brilliant. And they marketed that team, and the players did a good job. I mean, they built the camp, uh, camp kick in the grass, all the soccer camps for the young kids all over the southern part of the United States uh, under Gordon Hill. Uh, but it was, um, it was a fun. The rowdies were fun, and that's why people came out to see them, both outdoor and indoor.
0: Okay, so um, one last question on the rowdies uh, is uh, probably. Uh, The rivalries, right? You had two, I guess, crucial rivalries that uh, were sort of long lasting that I'm sure you have a couple of, uh, you know, I guess the closest thing to a Derby that you're going to find during those days, which is both with the uh, Fort Lauderdale Strikers and, oddly, the New York Cosmos. Um, Why those two teams? I mean, I guess one, obviously, from a regional uh, competition perspective, but why why the rivalries with those teams and, and maybe... You know, was there sort of some bad blood in between uh, those those two clubs, or was it manufactured, or, or or what? Because they were pretty intense. Some of those series.
1: Oh, they were they were big, two big rivalries, and the, like, the Fort Lauderdale rivalry was primarily you know Florida, the you know, nearest as you could get, almost to local um, from one side of the um, <coughs> the coast to the other coast. Uh, but there was a good rivalry, and of course. Um, Ronnie Newman and I were good drivers. Good We'd uh, grown up together uh, playing in the English League at the same time. Um, we battled each other in the, um, uh, the first North American Soccer League with the Bay Baltimore Bays, et cetera, and uh, Ronnie in Atlanta. So there was this built-in thing between the two of us, but it was created a good rivalry. It was a friendly rivalry. It wasn't nasty and everything. And, uh, and the fans of both um, teams, I mean, tra- there were a lot of people traveled across the uh, state to see the games or away games. And so that was a good rivalry there. And of course, we would always have to battle them to get through to the finals. And again we played them at the semi final I think both years and took went on to the final. And then but the Cosmos were different. The the, fa- the Baltimore fans were always upset that Eddie Formali had left to go to the Cosmos for one. Also, of course the Cosmos were so rich and had all the stars and playing the top money and with the number one team. So if you could knock them off the off their perch, then that would be um, that would be a big thing. And of course, we always had very good games against them. They, I, I don't, we won a few times. I can remember having a big victory at um, Tampa one time. But they were you know a class unto themselves. But um, Uh, they were good rivals but I think there was a little bit of jealousy from the fans of New York there was certainly a little bit of um, ill feeling because they'd taken Eddie Fermani and of course they also took um, Steve Wegley so those two things uh, didn't help Uh, the fans at you. So um, they, our fans always wanted us to to beat the Cosmos. But two very good rivalries that for good for the club. And if you check the attendance records, they were just incredible.
0: Well, nationally televised games, too, which was uh, relatively oh, yeah. far between at that time, right? So um, let's uh, let's segue. to. So I, I guess I'm really interested to in sort of how that uh, sort of the whole uh, Tampa Bay experience came to an end for you. I, I have a feeling, although I'm not certain that part of that had to do with the ownership change in 81, 82. Um, But maybe you can give us a sense of sort of how, uh, and I guess it's also the background, right, of the league itself starting to founder, shall we say, after some go-go years prior. Um, Oh, yes. How did did that sort of...
1: Well, it was evident that the league was going... It was evident, I think, in 80... I think I left in 84, 83, 84. Um, It was evident then that the league was going to struggle again Um, uh, because it it wasn't successful in other parts of the country. Uh, A lot of the teams uh, tried to keep up with the Cosmos, and the people like Tulsa and Wichita and San Antonio and and those franchises, they overspent to try and improve their team uh, to be as competitive. Well, you couldn't compete with Warner Brothers uh, and the amount of money that they were putting in and 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 again, they had a, a first-class situation where they took the team all over the world. They had all these famous stars, Beckham, and Co. Um, so they could make money as well as spend it. And so, consequently, uh, it became very evident to me that um, it wasn't going to be too successful. And I was preparing to go back to England um, in 84, 84 yeah, about eighty-four, and. Um, uh, and and I, and I wasn't enjoying it as much um, as as I had done, and so um, that was that was the deal. But um, I knew, and then right out of the blue, as I'm preparing to go back to England, um, uh, Tampa, uh, Dallas Sidekicks sent their general manager to see me in Tampa and asked me to come and meet the owner of the Mavericks, Mr. Carter, and the owner of the Sidekicks, and I said no at first. And then they said they actually came and knocked on my door in Tampa, and asked me to come and at least meet with Mr. Carter. And so in 1984, um, I think probably August, somewhere around there, or June or July, um, I came up to uh, came over to meet Mr. Carter. Uh, he convinced me that, uh, you know to come, and so I uh, and of course they were trying to get Carl Rowe Jr. at the time as the coach. And it it was taking too long for whatever reason. And so they'd already put a team together. And um, anyway, I decided to accept it instead of going back to England. And so uh, Mr. Carter was very um, convincing. And I came in uh, August to the meeting. I moved here in September. uh, And the league started in October. And uh, that was um, me joining the sidekick. So... um, it was really, very really quick. i say the team was in place, um, and we had a pretty difficult first year uh, because the team wasn't good enough. It was not indoor players, and the league at that time, the MISL, was, um, was pretty strong. So, um, yeah. But again, i I I've said right from day one all those years ago when I first came to San Francisco, I kind of fell in love with the United States, and I, did, I really didn't want to go back to England a second time. I'd been away six years, and I think it would have been difficult for me, Tim, to go back. Uh, I wouldn't have been aware of up-to-date players, etc., etc. so it might have been difficult to continue my career in England. So anyway, no regrets. I signed for two years, handshake with Mr. Carter, good old boy Texan, and uh, I came to um, the Dallas Sidekicks in uh, all September of 1984.
0: Well, let's, let's let's talk about that transition to the indoor game. And for you history buffs out there, you, you might not even know this, uh, but I do only because for a certain reason you'll find out in a second. Uh, the uh, the apparently, from what I understand, the charter of the Dallas Sidekicks when they started, uh, I guess, in January of nineteen eighty four, as a uh, I guess that's when they were registered or whatever. Um, they officially founded January 9th, nineteen eighty four, according to my records. Uh, was actually right, yeah. was actually the. Um, the remnants of a team known as the New Jersey Rockets, which uh, barely lasted one season from 1981 right. through 1982 at the uh, Brendan Byrne Meadowlands Arena. That yours truly was probably one of the uh, 50 or so season ticket holders, too. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> and arguably part of the reason why we do this show, because I was just fascinated as to why a team would be uh, come with such fanfare and then uh, depart literally uh, almost in the uh, near the end of the season, almost unnoticed. Uh, but that's actually what happened. The Dallas sidekicks actually would really do owe their uh, their very early origins to the New Jersey Rockets. But explain to me the MISL, uh, because, uh, you know, you're 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 segwaying out of the North American Soccer League, which obviously uh, it and uh, and outdoor soccer, I guess, were being kind of questioned as being perhaps not uh, the kind of uh, sport or soccer orientation that Americans might be interested in. The MISL was just. Uh, like it's Rocket Red Ball, red hot at the time. I mean, St. Louis is selling out places. in Kansas City and, you know, you had Pittsburgh. I mean, there's all kinds of craziness going on. Um, it took a little while to get Dallas going, but man, oh man, Dallas was kind of the center oh, yeah. of the MISL universe for a bunch of years with, under your tutelage.
1: We had 16,820 sellouts on a regular basis. But it's interesting, what happened was that these Dallas Mavericks, purchased that franchise out of New York, indoor soccer. And the reason they did it, I found out later in life, was that um, the Mavericks felt that they didn't want a hockey team in Reunion Arena in the National Hockey League. Uh, The stories I heard was, A, one, competition. B, the, the, there would be the problem of securing dates if there's a, a national hockey league team in the arena as well, also the the point of the ice that if you had to put the basketball uh, floor on top of the ice because you you know had to, they couldn't just melt the ice away because they were playing the next day and all that sort of thing and so the story was that the mavericks brought in soccer to keep out the National Hockey League. That was the story that we uh, were later on in life. And and, and I, can, I can visualize that, uh, and it was done in that respect. Uh, so um, it was, um, uh, and, and it was in same way. I remember, as I say, the first year was disastrous. And uh, Mr. Carter was so supportive of the, the, me and the team, because he'd experienced a, a first year Ownership in the uh, NBA, and he knew what it took to build a team, how long it took, etc., etc. And of course, as you know, um, it took us a couple of years to, to get it right. We won a championship in our third year.
0: We were having set-out
1: crowds, and um, we were. And at that time, in the 80s, there was no success for the Cowboys or the Rangers. Uh, we were the success. Uh, there was no no success for the other major sports in the city. So we the new boys on the block suddenly had sixteen thousand eight hundred sellouts. Um we won championships, we won the first one in eighty seven. Um it was just an incredible situation. Uh and um again, good marketing by the Mavericks staff because we had the same um, office staff. They could they work for the two sports uh with a few extra people. But um yeah, it was it was it was it was fun, and um, as I say, Mr. Carter was such a, and Norm Sonju, the general manager, two great men and very supportive, and um, we we turned it around from uh, oh I forget we had a terrible stuff first year, um, like I'm trying to think of the record. It wasn't you were, very you were good.
0: Twelve, you were twelve and thirty six that first year for a uh, whopping percentage of teams. Oh, you
1: got it, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> me. Yes, 12 and 36. I think we went 24 and 24, or 25, 23. Uh, and then the third year, we won the whole thing. Yeah. And and it was a good luck. Oh, I tell you what, that first year, I was out of my depth in indoor soccer. The, at, the way it was played in the league at that time. Why? The because it was, people... so
0: it was more sophisticated than what you remember playing Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, unbelievable. I mean, Ronnie Newman at um, San Diego was incredible. You know, uh, for example, just for the listeners, if, you know, you had the, um, the players' boxes and you had the two doors, which, what, 12 yards apart? And now he would take one fella off at one end and put another one on and gain 12 yards and get behind the defense and all that sort of thing. Or if he lost the ball, off would come a player and a defensive player. The way they used to utilize those uh, substitutions was absolutely brilliant. Then, playing off the boards. I mean, you, if a player came in from their angle, he didn't shoot at the goal. He shot for the boards. And the other players knew that was going to happen, and they're looking for the rebounds off of those boards as they come back across the goal. Um, There were all sorts of um, uh, tactics, uh, particularly when you lost a man, and you had a man up or a man down, like in hockey. Uh, Again, uh, the formations that they had. uh, And as I said, I came into it, well, absolutely no, no knowledge. And it took me a season, as well as the players, to learn all about the indoor game. And as I said, Mr. Cardiff, thank goodness, was a very patient man, and he bore with us. And um, provided we worked hard, we were okay. That was all he asked, uh, because he knew it was going to take time. And and, um, it took us a little time to acquire players who were indoor. I mean, we had a goalkeeper who was probably one of the best goalkeepers outdoor ever came here, um, Jan van Beveren from Holland. Oh, sure. Uh, Brilliant goalkeeper, but not indoors not indoors, because he couldn't use his feet. He wasn't uh, adept at manipulating the ball, kicking the ball, which he had to do as an indoor goalkeeper. And so there were little things like that that we were all learning. And it took us a season to learn and then get some more experienced indoor players the second season. And then by the time he got to the third, we'd, got a lot. we'd all grown up in terms of knowledge. And um, again, we won a championship right off the bat.
0: Yeah, Van Beveren was a big-time Fort Lauderdale
1: striker's guy. I remember he uh, oh, stymied yeah. many a oh, Cosmos. He was probably um, one of the best goalkeepers yeah. that came to the country in the North American Soccer Outdoor League.
0: All right, let's talk about a player for this. Uh, you can't talk about the da- Dallas sidekicks without, of course, the, uh, the inimitable Tattoo uh, and his uh, unique way of celebrating a goal. Uh, but you knew Tattoo in your Tampa Bay Rowdies days before you both wound up in Dallas, right?
1: Yes, I went down... Uh, George Strawberries did a deal with Sao Paulo Football Club in Brazil and it was for us to send down six young players to train down there and gain experience and our marketing people went down there to give them ideas in marketing. In return, we were to get three players, outdoor players, to come on loan and play for us that season. So I went down, I was down there for 12 days. Um, George Strawbridge and the general manager were down there. Um, We were all down there at that time. And I picked three of their top players. And it was agreed that they would um, come up and play on loan in the outdoor league. Now, at the same time I was down there, I saw a little five-a-side game being played. And there was this young player who turned out to be Tattoo playing uh, five-a-side on a kind of basketball court. And he was brilliant. So I said to their coach, was there any possibility I could have him on loan for our indoor season? And anyway, cut a long story short, uh, they did. And he came up and he was brilliant. And um, he had an agent, Francisco Marcus, and there was a player down in Brazil who used to try, throw his shirt into the crowd after he scored a, a particularly good goal. So this agent copied that with Tattoo. Whenever Tattoo scored, an indoor goal, he would throw his shirt into the stands. So that became a little trademark. Well, at the end of the indoor season, tattoo went back to um, Sao Paulo, and we we're waiting in May for the three players to come up on loan. And the Brazilian club reneged on the deal. So we were really stuck now. We were waiting and waiting. We hadn't gone and got it. So now we've lost those three. So I, in desperation, I said, could I have Tattoo back, knowing that he would become a fan favorite indoor? But uh, Tattoo was a far, far superior player indoor than an outdoor. Tattoo was very, very quick over three or four yards. He wasn't quick over 12 or 20 yards. And so he was ideally suited to be an indoor player. So he came up and played for an indoor team. It was an instant success. And at the... Um, End of that year, I'm leaving um, with the Outdoor League at, at the Routes was starting to go under. Uh, I got the position at um, Tampa, at Dallas, and I suggested to them that they should try and sign uh, Tattoo. And that's what happened. Uh, we were able to get Tattoo to come to Dallas from Tampa but and... Um, we all know what a great player he was and what a good young man for us he was. He was, uh, he was tremendous. It's a great player, great character, uh, fan favorite. Um, he was ideal for indoor.
0: Yeah, and frankly, between uh, you and him, probably the two people most uh, 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 you know forever memorialized with the, uh, the past and uh, perhaps the current of that uh, Dallas Sidekicks franchise, right? Probably two of the most valuable uh, personnel involved in that team, especially during that time.
1: Yeah, well, we both had long, I mean, I had 14 years uh, with the sidekicks, and is um, probably the same. Um, and, of course, he's now still here. Um, he's now, I think, 52 years of age, and I look back and I brought him here when he was an 18-year-old kid. Um, so, But we still see each other. We're still uh, active. He's still coaching uh, a girls' team and a, a boys' school. Um, I'm involved with the Dallas Cup, so we're still lucky to be involved in the Dallas soccer situation. But, um, yeah, we have nothing but good memories of the sidekicks. We had a great career with the sidekicks, um, a lot of success, a lot of fun, and people still talk about it even today. Um, I was in a restaurant the other day, and a gentleman came across and introduced himself and said, you know, how much he'd enjoyed being a sidekicks fan in those days. And as I say, we were selling out at Reunion Arena with 16,800 people.
0: Well, we want to probably get tattooed at some point uh, in a uh, in a future episode, so I'll definitely hit you up to hopefully some contact information. Oh, yeah. Right, two quickies on, on the sidekicks, and then maybe we'll figure out a way to let you go finally because you've been great with your time. Um, so uh, you left, though, for a couple of years, though, right? So you had a, a really good run. Uh, you had that one championship, and then uh, you left for a couple of years and then came back. Um, Maybe a little bit as to how that sort of transpired. And I think what you came back to, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, an MISL that was actually changing its stripes a bit. I guess it was at the time when you came back called the called Major Soccer League, which seems kind of oddly shapen. But I, I think that was because there was the thinking that maybe indoor and outdoor could be combined into sort of one year long kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe you, if you recollect maybe how the 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 scenarios by which you left and then came back again.
1: Well, I didn't leave the sidekicks.
0: Oh, okay, sorry,
1: my mistake. No, I didn't, I coaching. stopped coaching. Yeah. I became the general manager and the president, um, particularly because we changed ownership a few times um, and during that spell. And one of the owners in particular uh, felt that I could be of more value uh, in marketing and bringing in sponsorships because that was needed. And so um, my assistant, Billy Phillips, took over as the head coach. And um, I went into the office and spent most of my time knocking on doors to to obtain sponsorship uh, agreements and finance and such and so forth. So I was still involved um, with the the club. I did not leave. Uh, But then after another change of ownership, uh, that owner wanted me to come back. Uh, We'd now secured it a little bit better, and he wanted me to now resume coaching. So I came back and had a second stint. Of coaching uh, with the sidekicks uh, again. So the, I was there for 14 years from uh, 1984 to 1998.
0: That is my mistake um, i'm sorry I, I keep thinking about your no, coaching no, career no. Again, and here you are it's actually of the show right so, so
1: <laughs> yeah that's right that's, a so that's what we're trying to do right we're trying to we're, we're both trying to recollect our memories here tim i'm thinking but that's that's you know as i say that was it and i was lucky and um i had a long career uh with the with the sidekicks and it was um and we and as i often say now when i see there's still a lot of players here we often get together. And I always say we had the best years, of the sidekicks, without shadow of a doubt. So,
0: all right, one last question on the sidekicks. So the segue into the – I'm really interested in the sort of – we had Ken Tomash on uh, a number of months ago, who was the uh, announcer for the Indianapolis and then Indiana Twisters of the CISL. We got a little bit into sort of the uniqueness of that league, but um, maybe you could describe for our audience, because I think it's kind of uh, somewhat forgotten, right, or glossed over – What this Continental Indoor Soccer League thing was, because it was kind of, you know, on the heels of the the demise of the uh, major indoor soccer league, you had uh, this uh, AISA sort of uh, minor league thing that kind of got its sort of feet uh, and became almost its own professional league in the NPSL. But what was the CISL was a summer league, right? And, And why why was Dallas why did Dallas go that direction versus, say, this new NPSL, which had effectively become the new MISL?
1: Yeah, again, um, there was some concern about the way in which the NPSL was run. And what happened with the CISL was that a lot of basketball owners had teams. Uh, You know, Jerry Buss had the Los Angeles teams and so on. And because of that, Mr. Carter, or whoever was in once Carter. whoever was in, from the, because of the basketball situation, um, we felt it was the best. It no, there there was more security because you had good uh, basketball franchises uh, combining uh, the, the two organizations, NBA and the CISL. And the CISL was very successful for a while, uh, but then I think it made a couple of major mistakes. And then the WISL was formed. And I was made president of the WSL uh, by the owners of the league uh, because I was then president of um, the Dallas Sidekicks. And so I was then released by the owners to take charge of the league office, which was the World Indoor Soccer League. And then eventually, I think it was two or three years, and then we joined forces with the old, I think it was the old NPSL to make the new MISL. So there was a lot of changes. There was the NPSL for a while, then it became the CISL, um, and there was an AI something, and, and it was it was going through a real period of flux. And so we we then the CISL uh, as they went away, World Indoor Soccer League came into being, and then we joined forces. And I stepped away and let the Commissioner of the other one, uh, Ryan, I think it was Steve Ryan, uh, he took over because uh, I was ready to retire at that stage. Um, my wife was un- in bad health, unfortunately, and so I stepped away as president of the WISL, and um, the, uh, the, the new league became the M- MISL uh, with the t- combination of the two, WISL and the MPSL. There were so many changes in those years yeah, the job to keep up
0: with it all. No, oh, you need a graduate degree, and uh, and I think our friends who uh, who listen to these soccer episodes kind of wonder and scratch their head, but it always ends seems to end with an SL somehow uh, in that. So, all right, so um, obviously, yes. Uh, let me so let me ask you one question, and maybe use that as a segue into, I guess, sort of our final sort of zone here, which is sort of the uh, the current and the future of soccer in this country. But I actually want to ask you this question. I don't think I've I've, I've asked anybody. Uh, from our indoor exploits yet this question um do, do you i mean I, I, growing up watching the original misl I, it was it's an amazing it was an amazing sport and i was obviously an nasl fan outdoors but um you know i in some respects is i almost feel like i'm an indoor soccer purist if there is such a thing because you look at what exists today with the maa masl and you know, some uh, it, it seems downright ragtag by comparison. Now, maybe that's just me looking through the prism of youth and uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, history and all that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know. You wonder if there's a place for uh, a, a higher level than is there is today, maybe back to when the MISL was around of indoor soccer. It's a it's a very exciting sport, it has a lot of unique skill to it, Um do you think that ever has a chance to sort of to make it? I know people are talking about futsal, which is obviously a different game. Is there a future for the indoor game or is, is, is outdoor finally ensconced in this country where it's always going to be a sideshow from now on?
1: I think a lot is true. I think the um, MLS is secure. Um, I've still got some concerns because I think they're still expanding too quickly. Um, There's not enough good players coming through from the colleges into the MLS. And so we're still relying on overseas players to come in and be. And and that's not the way. Um, So I still think that uh, the uh, MLS is. But the MLS is secure now financially. They've got some good franchises, good ownerships. Um, They're doing very well in certain most cities. Um, if they keep control of their budgets and don't waste too much money on overseas foreign players who are you know, coming to the end of their careers, uh, I, mean, I don't mind that, but keep the, the expenses. Don't start making the same mistakes that the North American Soccer League did when trying to keep up with the Joneses and spending money they couldn't afford. So the MLS is the outdoor league, and that's the future of soccer in this country. It has to be. Uh, so that we build a good national team. Um, our clubs can compete in Central America and Cold cacaf etc. et cetera, et cetera. Um, That's it. If there is an indoor league, it, at the moment, it, 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 but what I've seen, uh, it, it's unfortunately gone the wrong way. You've got some clubs that have got good finances and good situations, um, and then you've got others that are not. Uh, and um, so consequently, the quality of the game has gone down. There's not the money for advertising and expenditure. Uh, and whether well, it can come back, and st- because like you, uh, indoor soccer, if it's done right, it's very exciting. It's a good night out. Um, the, the games can be very, very high quality of soccer, even with the indoor and playing off the balls, etc., etc. But as an entertainment, uh, it's good. Uh, I don't think Futsal is, personally, uh, because the ball going out of play, whereas in the indoor, with us, with the boards, it's different. So my situation is, my feeling is this. MLS is here to stay, and provided it does those two things, keeps controls of its finance, and doesn't have too much expansion until we get more players coming through, uh, players of quality. Because we've got to have young America. You can't keep going out like many of the MLS teams are at the moment, and they're bringing in foreign players everywhere. And that's not going to be the answer in the long run. So MLS, keep no, not too much expansion, keep control of your expenses, and we've got a quality international league, and hopefully we'll build a national soccer team uh, for world competition. Indoor, if it can come back, it can come back in its own entity, it can play in the winter months, uh, and be successful but it's got to have um, good finance and good quality uh, maybe, maybe may never come back uh, we've, I don't, we're struggling here in Dallas at the moment uh, whether the side, I believe the sidekicks are coming back uh, I'm not yet certain uh, but it's a vastly different game, standard of play uh, than it was in our day and I don't say that to be disrespectful. It's the fact that um, the quality of play in the indoor is nowhere near. Because what we did have in indoor, we had a lot of outdoor players and outdoor coaches like myself that when the NASL went under, they stayed in this country. And so you had you know, the, a lot of good players from the North American Soccer League, good soccer players who could adapt uh, playing indoors in those early leagues. And being so very successful with a very um, high brand of soccer.
0: You know, we've only uh, scratched the surface of a bunch of a bunch of uh, stories and some of your uh, your your uh, uh, escapades uh, in uh, American soccer. But uh, now's a good chance to uh, promote your book, which came out last year. You want to tell our audience what that is, uh, <laughs> where they can find it, and all that kind of good stuff, as well as what you're yeah. up to today, because you have not retired. You're, you're still very active in the sport uh, in the Dallas area, right?
1: I'm very involved in the Dallas Cup, um, I'm an ambassador consultant, I spend a great deal of time negotiating with the top teams around the world, Manchester um, United's, Real Madrid, Barcelona's, São Paulo's, um, I build up a long uh, network and my job is to bring those teams in to the Dallas Cup every year. We bring in 228 teams from around the world. Our boys of under 13 up to under 18, um, and I have that uh, good fortune to uh, be in touch with the teams, be in touch with referees, I negotiate contracts, and I help Andy Swift, the executive director, uh, to bring in as many top teams from the United States and around the world each year. So I'm very fortunate. I have the opportunity to travel to some of these countries um, as their guests uh, and to bring the teams in. So that is keeping me, as I say, very active and very interested. Um, what else were you asking there, Tim? The book. Oh, the book. Yes, I was asked to produce a book. I said no, but anyway, they talked me into it. I tried to produce uh, something that was um, interesting. Uh, it wasn't about this game, that goal. Uh, it talks about many things. It talks about my view of um, American soccer, where it is to now, now in college, in youth and uh, where it, I think it has to go. Um, and, uh, of course, I tell the stories of um, Rodney Marsh and myself, uh, which are quite interesting. and uh, then talking about how I started. Um, and it starts from my growing up as a kid in the Blitz in London uh, and uh, such, and that was put in because of a sports reporter here, Norm Hitskis, who wanted me to, he knew about that, and he said, you should put a chapter in about that But it's it's received very, very good reviews, both in England and the United States. Um, It's selling very well. And the nicest thing about it, uh, all the royalties go to the Dallas Fallen Officers Organization. It's for the children of police officers uh, who've lost their lives or been injured in the line of duty. And the reason that is, Tim, is because my wife was a London police officer um, when I met her, when I married her. And uh, she became very friendly with the police here when we lived here. And so when we lost her four years ago, the Dallas Cup formed a memorial fund in her name. And I'm very honored that um, all the revenues we get go to such a good cause. She would have been proud. So um, it's a book, as I say, I think I've had very a lot of people read it and been, come back to me and said they found it very interesting. Uh, It is an autobiography. Um, It talks about many of the things you and I have talked to this evening. Um, And as I say, the nicest thing is that all the revenues that we're making, uh, we just gave, I think, $14,000 to the Dallas police officers uh, from that and other things that we do for the police. So it's a win-win situation. That's right. It was interesting. It took eight months to prepare. Um, And and the biggest and interesting piece piece to me was doing the research and I think you have that's what you do a lot of, Tim, and I found that fascinating. Um, my memory served me well in some cases, uh, but some of the things I looked up in books and discovered and so on and so forth, um, that made it very, very interesting in putting the whole thing together.
0: That was a tremendous conversation and uh, Gordon's been a, an absolute de- uh, delight to, uh, to chat with. And uh, I can't encourage you enough to, uh, to find out more. We, we truly uh, just scratched the surface. A lot more stories to be had. Uh, and I encourage you to uh, pick up uh, Gordon's autobiography. It's called A Soccer Pioneer, the autobiography of Gordon Jago. Uh, it is written in conjunction with Wayne Barton. And uh, as you heard Gordon say, uh, all, the, all of the royalties of uh, of a soccer pioneer go to the uh, goes to the Dallas Fallen Officer uh, Foundation uh, in Dallas, uh, a, a tremendous charity uh, and uh, an effort on his part to uh, to donate uh, all the proceeds from the book. It's a good thing to do. It's also a, a great read, and you will enjoy it thoroughly, uh, as I did. It's called The Soccer Pioneer: The Autobiography of Gordon Jago. It is published by our friends at St. Johann Press. Uh, you can find it. Uh, wherever good books are sold. But of course, you can go on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Gordon Jago and you will find uh, a couple of links from uh, from to the book uh, where you can purchase it uh, straight away there. Uh, you also find a little write-up about the show, some uh, some great photos uh, of Gordon and his uh, times and tribulations uh, and all the things that we discussed. And of course, uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com is the place to just check in with uh, all the old episodes that you might have missed. Uh, all of the latest that is going on with the show. If you want to subscribe to our newsletter uh, or follow us on social media, which you can do directly, of course, by going to Twitter at uh, Good Seats Still. Uh, You'll find us on uh, Facebook. Uh, There's a page devoted to us there. You can like us there. And, uh, of course, on Instagram, you can find us at Good Seats Still Available. So uh, we appreciate uh, you checking us out in any and all of those places. And we also appreciate you checking out our friends at Podfly Productions. Uh, Podfly.net, that's the place where we get all our uh, production stuff Handled every week, and uh, if you're thinking about getting into podcasting or could use some some help just getting going, or perhaps you're a pro and you just uh, need some uh, some editing and some uh, some spicing up of your efforts, by all means, go to Podfly.net and check them out. And uh, you can't have Dr. Jerry Payne; he's our guy. He's my man. Uh, he's the guy who puts my pieces together, and I appreciate it. But there's a whole host of other folks there. Now, I'm sure Jerry will help you out too. I'm sure he's, uh, he's not just exclusive to me. I'm just being selfish, but. Uh, check them out, podfly.net. We uh, we love them, and I'm sure you will, too, if you decide you want to get into podcasting yourself. And uh, that's all I got this week. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, keep uh, all of your notes and your tweets and your, uh, your emails and all that kind of stuff coming. We appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate your patronage of our sponsors. That helps keep the show going. And, of course, please, please, please rate and review us, especially on Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts. But, frankly, wherever you can rate and review the show, we uh, especially if it's good, frankly, only if it's good, just uh, give us uh, some stars and some uh, some love and write a couple of sentences. We appreciate that. That's a great way to inexpensively help support the show. And uh, we thank you kindly. All right. We'll see you next week. Take care. everybody.